Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Aronex Show, the podcast that looks at all the things to do with the transformation of the shipping ocean and maritime industries. My name's Craig Eason and I'm the managing editor of the Fathom World website. Now this is an extra episode of the podcast following the most recent meeting of the IMO's Marine Environment Protection Committee, which has finalised some of the finer details to do with what are called the short-term measures to decarbonise shipping. To help me understand the decisions that were made, I've called on Edwin Pang. Now, Edwin heads up the IMO committee of the Royal Institute of Naval Architects and not only sat through the recent intersessional meetings, but also the remote MEPC meeting, looking almost exclusively at decarbonisation issues. In that most recent meeting, two pieces of regulations were agreed on both of which have got a lot of press because they've been labelled as insufficient by a number of the green lobby groups and some media outlets. These two rules are the Energy Efficiency Design Index for existing ships and the Carbon Intensity Indicator. Both apply to the vessels that are currently in service, but in different ways. Edwin has put his thoughts into a recent social media post on LinkedIn, and you can find them there, explaining how the percentage reductions that have been decided hide a lot of more complex issues that are, in his view, just not being understood. So let's welcome Edwin Pang to the Aronax podcast, and let's start with the CII and why you think the figures aren't quite as simple as many people think. Thank you very much, Craig. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, as I was trying to construct the post on LinkedIn, these were some of the thoughts that I had. And so that 11% headline number sort of hides um, actually a bunch of quite complex interactions uh, between different things that a ship owner might encounter. So I think the first thing to note is that with the um, with the rating boundaries A to E that we implemented in the CII requirements, um, those that are rated E would then have to take corrective act, make corrective actions to get down to sort of D or C. And and so while that headline number of 11% in 2026 or even 5% in 2023 doesn't seem like very much, um, the amount that, let's say, a tanker owner might have to do if his vessel was rated E would be off the order of 19% and beyond. And so the, the, the 11% um, and, and, and the 5% sort of summary numbers really don't do the whole thing very much justice at all. And I think the other, the other thing is that this, this whole concept of you know, what 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 the shipping sort of on average managed to do on business as usual and what you'd normally do you know between um in, trying to improve your operation and 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 sort of ordering new ships we did a bit of a switcheroo um when we were writing these regulations and that is we took the fleet average and we turned that into a target for for on a vessel basis and on a fleet basis the impact of larger ships and newer ships obviously affect the final sort of um, achievement of a fleet and and to, to a certain extent that's how we've managed to sort of improve by anything from sort of 23 to 33 percent between 2008 and 2019 but when you look at on the individual on, on the individual ship level those remedies if you like 
of increasing ship size and 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 newer ships with better technology those remedies don't exist so suddenly take taking a target that was sort of meant for for a fleet and and turning it into something that's that's meant for individual ships suddenly becomes actually a fair bit more challenging for the individual ships themselves with the individual ships an owner has got a limited number of options available when it comes to actually meeting um, what is going to be expected. And I don't want to get into too much of a discussion about the actual technologies or the ways that it is going to um, be achieved. But in terms of what can be achieved, I did notice on your post that you'd mentioned that there's actually been a significant amount of percentage improvement already without this coming into. There's already been a lot of effort into making vessels more efficient. I think we trace a lot of things back to 2008 where there was a financial crisis and in the aftermath of that, the the bottom fell out of most shipping markets uh, and it was a sort of do something uh, to survive or, or not or go to the wall. Um, and that's that's when many ship owners and, and shipyards start to pay extraordinary amounts of attention to how they could save fuel. And so there were operational practices. I think this is where um, Maersk started their performance uh, department, and which which saved them significant amounts of fuel. And equally, at the you know on the technology side in, in the shipyards, they started to implement. Um, larger diameter propellers, uh, lower RPM uh, on the engines, derating, uh, and, and all those things. Of course, there was the, you know, the sort of slower steaming, which which uh, got widely adopted. And so between all of those things, I think we, we, we've seen a, a reduction in, in the kind of daily fuel consumption of, of many ship types across many different sectors. Do you think that the CII is, is, is going to have a strong impact in 2023, which I think is when it actually it kicks in. Um, will ship owners actually respond to this and will the, will there actually be easy solutions that they can actually utilise? I think most of the ship owners I speak to are taking it very seriously, even, even if, you know, on paper there is no enforcement. Um, everyone is trying to make preparations. Everyone is, is trying to make forecasts looking at at what point do their ships fall out of compliance and what and then trying to figure out what they need to do obviously dry dock planning takes time and most of most of these ships don't go into dry dock that often and so plans are being plans are being made um so th- there'll be some ships which sort of might manage to stay compliant for 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 a year or two there'll be others where they will have to look very seriously at their operating profile and and when i say operating profile i don't just mean speed um, but actually, the the operating profile of a vessel uh, actually has an inordinate influence on your final result. The, mm. the easiest way to think about it is is um, that the AR or or the CG dist um, uh, indicator that we're using is 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 almost analogous to um, the MPG readouts in your car. If if you're in the UK, it's miles per gallon. Uh, if if you're in continental Europe, it's um, it's liters per hundred kilometers. But but the formulation of of the indicator is effectively the same. So you've got exactly the same sensitivity. So everybody else knows that if you get stuck in traffic, your your 
this MPG meter uh, will give you a very bad result. You'll be very fuel inefficient, even if you haven't necessarily used that much fuel, but the kind of per mile um, sort of efficiency sort of drops dramatically. And and equally, if you're out of town and you're driving on a motorway or, or a highway with not much traffic and, and not, not needing to stop, then it will begin to look very efficient. And those are exactly the same sorts of sensitivities as we're going to see for ships that are going to be subject to the CII. So it generally, longer routes will probably look quite good. And shorter routes where where ships have lots and lots of port stays, uh, lots of loading and discharge ports will probably look worse. So as two identical ships, one could actually get a much better rating and the other one would have a poor rating. Or alternatively, a vessel in 2023 might find itself with a good rating, but the subsequent year, because it gets put on a different trade, it might find itself then on a very poor rating because its trade route, um, its trading pattern to be more accurately, has actually changed significantly. So it's a more of a stop-start, stop-start training rather than long ocean passages. Absolutely. The, the, other, the other thing that I, I find quite interesting is that the carbon intensity um, indicator is based on the data that is being sent to the IMO's data collection system. Um, so all, all ships over 5,000 gross tons have got to have their data sent in, um, whereas the EEXI is a different set of data um, altogether, isn't it? it it's, and it's, it's even based on a different um, definition, different, different benchmark. Do you think these, this, this lack of correlation between the two in this respect is actually going to be problematic? Or is it, do you think that is actually going to sort itself out in the end? I think the best way to think of them is a sort of separate regulations. So EEXI is a sort of paper certification that that you undergo once. So it's a bit like when you go buy a car and and the the, the marketing brochure tells you this car will do sixty miles to the gallon on the combined cycle. EEXI is a little bit like that. It's probably a bit better in some ways, but it's a little bit like that. So it's based on technical parameters, uh, technical parameters um, at a specific load point uh, in terms of engine MCR and a specific speed uh, in a laden condition. So, mm. so EXI is a snapshot uh, of how the ship is going to perform turned into a sort of standard, and and that's your you you must comply with EXI. Um, within your first renewal annual or intermediate survey after 2023, mm. or you don't have a certificate. So that's what EXI. And EXI almost sort of um, prepares the road, if you like, to just, just make sure that it's, it's, you know, it's, the, it's the entry ticket to, to continue to trade. I think you could probably look at it that way. And it will impose some restrictions. In the main, we think it's going to be uh, pr you know, primarily engine power limitations to bring the power of, of sort of the, generally the older uh, part of the fleet to, to bring, bring, bring their installed power down. CII is the sort of ongoing um, assessment every year of how you're doing. So the real fuel consumption rather than the theoretical one, if you like. And, and so, you know, once you've gained that entry, that, that entry to, to, you know, with, with the EXI, then CII kicks in 
sort of year after year. And of course, even though the first year of CII is, is in 2023, you don't assess what happened in 2023 until 2024. So CII kind of looks backwards and, and EXI just sort of takes that snapshot of theoretically of where, where you need to be and, and, and sets, a, sets a threshold. So that, I think that's the best way of, of thinking of how those two sort of interact. In terms of how the discussions are likely to move forward now, um, and I, I know we're talking about these are the short term measures, but just before we conclude, I want to look more at the sort of the mid term um, and long term in terms of how you see from a sort of from a naval architect perspective, from a sort of technical perspective, how we decarbonize the industry and we we go down this journey i know there's a lot of discussion about fuels i know there's a lot of discussion about um, ammonia and hydrogen and stuff like that and i don't i don't necessarily want to talk about uh, the fuels per se but how do you see us transitioning from this fleet that we've got now which is focused on compliance through eexi and cii um, to more long-term measures or even the introduction of market-based measures. And I know market-based measures by its very name is market-based, but I want a more technical answer from you on this rather than to go into the rather deep political arguments, pros and cons of market-based measures, but in terms of how the industry itself is going to technically evolve. Um, someone, someone said the other day to me that there... Uh, you know, by by way of of explanation of how far the LNG bunkering market has gone, we we now have twenty uh, or so LNG bunker vessels around the world, and I was sort of slightly curious as to how many oil bunker vessels do we have around the world? And I think I think Rotterdam alone has about one hundred and fifty, um, and if you multiply that by the number of ports around the major ports around the world, you get a sense of even after all this time with us trying to build out LNG infrastructure, we're still a long, long way away from it being anywhere near the sort of infrastructure we have for liquid fuels. And that's a sort of a seg into um, alternative fuels is going to take a really long time to make an impact, I think. And so the tools we sort of have left in terms of actually getting there, forgetting the kind of policy type stuff, but but what we actually implement on board, we're really left with tr trying to do more on the energy efficiency optimization side. And then we have wind. Wind's the only one where we can implement now. We don't have to wait for infrastructure, bunkering infrastructure or renewable energy infrastructure. Wind's the only one that we can if we can get past the sort of the resistance and and the uncertainty and the fact that this seems like very old technology, um, that that seems to be the one, particularly if you're a bulk carrier or a tanker, that you can implement now and make a significant difference. But uh, I mean that case in point, and there's what twelve, fifteen wind assist powered vessels in service at the moment, and that's. That's over the last decade or so, I'd say half the time that we've seen the growth of LNG as in marine fuel, but we've seen a lot slower growth in terms of uh, wind propulsion, just to do the uh, this reluctance to put what is a very obvious technology on the deck of a ship. We, we're we trying to do something on, about that. I mean, we, we actually, the, the, the regulations... Um, 
that we have at the IMO, particularly EDI and EASI, are not at the moment particularly friendly to wind. And so that's one obvious barrier where the calculation methodology seems to completely underpredict what um, what benefit you get from wind. So there's a little coalition of interested member states and the Royal Institution and Marin and ABS um, that are going to be working together quite intensely over the next month or so um, to try and um, cobble together the, the separate proposals that we we all brought forward to MEPC 76 and which we didn't have time to discuss, but to have one sort of unified proposal for how we would like to um, take account of wind going forward within the EXI framework. And so the concept there would be then once we have a, a more wind friendly um, calculation methodology, um, we would at least promote the uptake of wind even as a solution for compliance with EXI to, to start with. And that and, and by doing that, it might also be a compliance mechanism for CII for a number of years. It's just depending on, on where you're at with that. There's a growing number of uh, technology providers within the wind market now that that uh, I've seen emerged. If you look at there's even an international wind ship association that is promoting all of these technologies. But they, 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 there's a lot of them that seem to have come out. They all seem to be in that very sort of nascent embryonic state, putting systems on, on board. And like all technologies, they're at risk then of running out of capital when it comes to actually being there for the market. I, uh, you know, it's, it's like any technical technical part of the shipping industry it needs a lot of capital to be put in to then be able to um, reach a certain market value the ballast water system um, market was a, a similar case where we're, i'm hoping and i think many are hoping that we don't repeat the ballast water debacle of having to wait a very long time for the promised orders to materialize and i think we there are lots of lessons to be learned from how we implemented the ballast water convention um, and that would certainly be one of them. I think that the the urgency, the imperative is probably much more in wind's favour today compared to if you were a ballast water system provider back in, say, 2006. Um, <laughs> and yes. and o- only maybe now beginning to sort of reap the benefits of those early painful years um, of, of the market that was always coming and around the corner. Um, so... But I think I certainly hope that, that that's not the case for, for, for wind. The head of the Royal Institute of Naval Architects, IMO Committee, Edwin Pang, on his interpretation of the EEXI and CII figures agreed at the IMO recently. And you can read his more detailed insight in his LinkedIn posts. I'll put the links to them in the show notes so you could read them yourselves. In the posts, he goes into far more detail than we could possibly get into in a podcast episode. That's it for this special edition of the Aronex podcast. Please remember to check out our other episodes and subscribe to get notifications of future episodes. Also, head off to the Fathom World website. There you can alternatively sign up for our regular or irregular newsletter where the podcast will also be highlighted. And as I say before, feel free to get in touch with your ideas and hopefully support our independent take on shipping oceans and the transformations they face. Until the next time, goodbye.